Uh, if you're new, I'm just going to recap that a little bit because this is the last week of all of it. Uh, we have been basically saying this statement that I felt like God put in my heart in January. And hopefully you know it by now. It's just very basic. It's incredibly basic. And it just goes like this. If nothing changes, then nothing changes. And so that, that's the premise. I know you're like, wow, that is, I'm so glad I came to this space. It's so brilliant. That has been my burden for 2022, that we are going to be a people that are changed by Jesus. And so over the years, to play catch up, we have seen a lot of people come through the doors, a lot of people listen online, we've seen probably close to 1,000 people baptized, and it's been a bit of a revolving door, and uh, now that I'm getting older in ministry, I'm going, so what's the problem and what's the solution? And so what we said at the beginning of the year is that we all have issues, and if we don't deal with our issues, we went to this trauma series, if we don't deal with our issues, then they're bound to repeat themselves, and so it's okay to be wherever we're at this morning, spiritually, emotionally, but what's not okay, according to Jesus, is for us to stay in that space, that he wants to see us grow in our faith and grow in our spiritual maturity. And so we walked through this thing where we talked about trauma, what it looks like in the gospel, how we pretty much all have it by a broad definition of things from our past that have affected us negatively, and then now we're looking in the last several months at what it looks like to move past it in a disciplined and godly life. And so it's kind of like part one and part two, but the overarching reality is that if nothing changes, then nothing changes. And so today we end at the last week of what it looks like to be disciplined in our call with Jesus to minister the gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. We're going to finish where we started this whole thing out with this, this story that hangs over everything of the woman at the well. And what I told you when we went through this in, in the winter still is this story represents so many of us. But here's the transition. And this is, if you want to know how my mind works as a therapist, this is not a transition. Look at me when I tell you this. This is the transition that has to happen in your life. If you want to be who God has called you to be, there is a transition that has to take place. When we talked about this lady that hung over this entire narrative of trauma, we talked about her through the lens of all of us looking like her, okay? This is what has to change, if we want to be who God has called us to be in this disciplined, godly life that he's called us to live, the transition looks like this, that all of us at a certain point when we came to Christ with all of our baggage looked like this woman, and what I told you was all of us have spent time at the well. And I'm going to get into what that looks like today, but all of us have spent time in the well, but the transition is this, that we have to, as followers of Christ, we have to mature in our faith from a place where we are living at the well, look at me when I tell you this, to a place where we are ministering at the well. And if we don't make that transition, then the hamster wheel keeps spinning. And everything that Jesus tells us would lead us to believe that that transition is not for some of us, it's for all of us. It's okay to be broken, it's not okay to stay in our dysfunctions. And so in the spring, the look was, this is what it looks like. We're all living at that well. Now it's from a different, you know, aerial view where now we're looking at it from the perspective of how do we go to the well, not to live in it, but to minister to it? How do we look like Jesus? And so I'm going to give you some examples of what that looks like in our community, but let's go through the passage together as we close out this series. John chapter 4, Jesus is passing through Samaria, verse 5. 
And so he came to a town called Samaria near the field of Jacob that had been given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. This was a famous well. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's about 12 o'clock. Just a little recap of the story if you've never heard it. This woman's doing something unusual. She's going to the well, but she's going to the well at a time where no one else was going to the well. Everyone would have gone to the well, mostly women, at around 9 a.m. in the morning. It would have been a social hour. They would have been connecting on all sorts of life issues. It would have been their time to kind of have that coffee talk, and they would have been getting the necessity of water to live. And she does so in a time that's much different. She goes at around 12 o'clock when it's hot, and no one else wants to be there. And it's not because she overslept the alarm clock. It's because that's what she was trying to do. People that are hurting, people that are dysfunctional, for lack of a better term, will often avoid on purpose. And so she's being incredibly avoidant. And the whole backstory towards Samaria has to be addressed. This was not a community that Jewish people wanted anything to do with. And so if you were Jewish 2,000 years ago, you didn't do what Jesus did. You would have actually, instead of going into this community, you would have taken a two-day journey to walk around it. Because these people were considered, and this is racist, they were considered half-breeds, they were considered pagans, they were not accepted in any way by Jewish people. And so Jesus, the Messiah, goes in instead of around Samaria. He walks through it, he pursues this woman because he had a plan to do so. He goes into a town where holy men don't go to talk to a woman that holy men don't talk to, and he strikes up this conversation with this woman. This is ministry that we're talking about today. This is our story as well. We go two wells. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She gets it. She sees how unusual this whole narrative is. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself as did his sons and his livestock. And then Jesus says to her, everyone, this is pivotal, underline it if you haven't so far, everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become one in a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He, he just blows the top off the cover. I mean, he just takes it to another level in this narrative. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. Here's what's going on in her life. She's isolated. She's isolated on purpose. This was not by accident. I heard someone say back at the beginning of the year when we started talking about this lady's story, there's a difference between solitude and isolation. Solitude is something you choose for a time to draw close to God. Isolation is what you choose all the time to be away from God's people. She was used to being ousted. She was used to being an outcast. And now at the well, Jesus enters the equation. She's broken. Verse 16 says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. Her heart's probably pounding. Put yourself in the narrative. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And she said, what you have said is true. 
Here's another thing about this woman. This woman is unhealthy. This woman is dysfunctional. This woman is hurting. And what she's done is what so many of us done. She looks to a person or an object to calm her heart instead of worshiping the Savior. And so he starts reading her mail. He says, you've been married five times, and now you're about to jump into relationship number six. And so maybe when this all started, you thought, well, this one wasn't the right one, or this person, you know, this person didn't treat me right. But Jesus is looking at her, and he's not holding anything back. He's saying, at what point do you have to concede that your way is broken? Maybe, just maybe, I know something you don't know. And so he's telling her these things. And in verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Right? Amen. Maybe you might, at this point in the story, she's probably freaking out. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you'll worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This woman is spiritually confused. She's hurting. She's heard all sorts of bad theology about who God is and how God works. The land that she comes from is known for child sacrifice. She's seen a warped view of who God is and his punitive nature. And she's trying to unpack all of this and she starts talking theology with Jesus. There's no question she has unresolved issues from her past. There's also no question that she's probably been most likely abused by at least some of the husbands who have divorced her. Because in this time period, men had all the power. It was misogynistic to the core. And so in that sense, she truly was a victim. And she has pain transference that some of us walk into this space with, where it's not just one situation that's let her down. It's situation after situation after situation. So her trust level, look at me, it's like at a zero with men. And now she sees this Jew who is coming and approaching her, and her heart's pounding, and she starts hearing about her past. She starts talking theology, and she is broken. Defined by an understanding that her world isn't safe. That her world can't be trusted. And then it starts concluding. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now look at this. This is unequivocally Jesus saying, this is who I am. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In a world of, world of relative truth, I don't, I don't know about you, we talked about that this last week. This seems pretty absolute. I am the Messiah. He just took it up about 10 notches. I who speak to you am he. Just then disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? She's walking in this brokenness and shame, and she's living in this reality that she's not good enough, that she doesn't measure up, and now she just realizes the Son of God, the Messiah, has approached her face to face, looked her in the eye, gave her some dignity, talked to her about her past, offered her some living water, and so she's starting to put the pieces together. His disciples, who've been walking with him for a while, are baffled that he would even communicate with someone of such low social standings. 
And then it all concludes, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And we don't know what all that I ever did really means because we just get this little glimpse into the scriptures. I mean, it could be taken literally, in my opinion. Does, does he have this time with where, where he unpacks, you did this and you did this and you did this, but here's what I've called you to. It's okay to be broken. It's not okay to stay that way. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So everything changes when Christ enters into this narrative of her life and your life and my life. But what I want to do is we've gone through this story before. We started the year with it. Is I want to look at it through the second lens of not living in this well, but ministering to it. What does it look like? Here's the first question. I would like you to just write these very common sense things down because this is what new life is all about. What does it look like? What do you need to know about ministry? I'm gonna tell you the most profound statement you'll ever hear. Are you ready? Ministry is messy. Shocker, right? If you don't know that, it's because you don't minister to anybody. Ministry in Aberdeen is messy. If you don't know that, you're not doing it right. I'm going to prove my belief based on Scripture and common sense, based on what Jesus did and what we're called to do, on what I've seen this past week. And I want to have a little time where we all invest in this message together and share our own mess about what life looked like in the last you know, 100 plus hours. How many of you I'm going to ask it backwards because I think there's so many, it's better to ask backwards. How many of you this past week did not go to the Brown County Fair? Introvert, introvert, middle-aged dad, who else? You're like, ah, okay. How many of you went to the fair? Raise it high. How many of you went to the fair more than once? How many of you went to the fair like five times? I feel like I'm on Willy Wonka. How many chocolate balls did you eat, right? I mean, how many, how have you went to the fair like almost every day? Because that's how you roll. I want to just, just, I talked about this the first service. I went off on a tangent about this. I can learn so much about what not to, to do in life by people watching. How many of you went to the fair and your favorite thing to do at the fair is you love to people watch? Right? You will have a different lens if you're not where I'm at in life. Once you get to the fair and you're in your 40s and you have teenagers and you have a daughter who's almost 13, you see the Brown County Fair from a whole different lens. You, you see the Brown County Fair through the lens of holding a shotgun on your porch, right? I mean, the Brown County Fair, this is why I bring it up, ministry is messy. The Brown County Fair is not this kind of, you know, social piece or fabric of our community. It is Aberdeen. If you don't go to the fair, you don't know your community, and when you go to the fair and you see your community, if you're like me, it freaks you out a little bit because you realize you've been living in a ministry bubble that's not representative of the collective community that you're trying to reach with the gospel. And nothing will open your eyes to the reality of ministry being messy, of people's lives being messy, like the Brown County Fair. Amen? Nothing. And there's all sorts of innocence to the fair. Like you see people my age and, and their biggest problem is they gain 10 pounds from corn dogs and tubby burgers. But then you have this other lens like that 16 to 26 year old crowd and you're going to saying to yourself, I, I have kids in this crowd. 
and you learn some things about how the community ticks. There are spiritual wells at about every foot of that fair. There are more spiritual wells with broken people at the Brown County Fair than potholes at our local mall. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Every night I'm sitting at that fair people watching because my daughter's on rides and over my dead body is she not going to be supervised, right? I'm living at this fair this week and I'm people watching. I learned some things. One of the things I learned about the fair over the last 21 years of faithful fair attendance is that it seems like, track with this, it seems like about 10% of our community is cowboys. And then two days of the year, 80% of all young men are cowboys. It's a It's a miracle. It's a miracle. I mean, I know no one's posing. I know everyone's legit in ropes and calves and, you know, ranches. And it's about 80% of our community as opposed to 10%. It just shocks me when I see all of the cowboys. And then I see them doing something that freaks me out even worse with a teenage daughter. I see these young men or boys on mission operating in a herd mentality where they're kind of mowing through the fair and the rides and their eyes are glassy and they've got those cutoff t-shirts and their cowboy hats and they smell like alcohol and their eyes are glassed over and I'm thinking to myself, over my dead body, will you come within 100 yards of my little girl? But I'm learning how this all works and I'm saying to myself in the most judgmental of fashions that there's no way, there's no way that that's okay. I get it, there's a bunch of innocence too, but I'm looking at it through dad lens. And I see girls that I'm watching, 12, 13, 14, 16 years old, 20 years old, I see little girls going to the fair, and I know darn well as a dad that they had a sweatshirt on before their dad saw them leave, and it's not on any longer. Little girls that are insecure, that are starving for male attention because their dads aren't giving them enough. And I'm looking at all of this, and I'm saying to myself, man, this is the ministry that God has called us to. But instead of doing what Jesus did, I'm looking at them through a judgmental lens, and I'm I'm saying things to myself as a therapist, as a pastor, as an old person. I'm saying, man, if they don't make some changes, 30 is going to be tough, right? You ever been there? 30 is going to be tough for that one. 30 is going to be tough for that one. It's not going to go as planned. And I'm saying all of this, but then I look at how Jesus is operating with ministry. He knows that ministry is messy, and instead of putting on that judgmental lens, Jesus is ministering, write this down, ministry starts from a place of compassion towards those spiritual wells that people are walking in at the fair. Jesus engages that crowd, and he has compassion for those people, and I'm operating as a cynic and as a judgmental Pharisee. Jesus is seeing them with compassion. This woman would have taken the cake at the Brown County Fair. Jesus sees her. He loves her. She doesn't come to him. He goes straight to her. Here's another one. Ministry at New Life, ministry in the Bible. Ministry is not for some of us. Ministry is for everyone who follows Christ. It's for every Christian. We were in a staff meeting. We saw 46 people baptized a few weeks ago. 30 of them were at New Life here in downtown. And we asked this question because this is what you do if you're in leadership. We said, what do we do with these people How do we ensure that they don't just make a quick decision, but they're being discipled? And so ideas, it was like a little think tank that was a little underwhelming, but we all had our ideas, and we were going around the the conference room table, 
And one of our part-time staff kind of said from the corner, he's not always there. He has a full-time job outside of ministry. He said, I don't know, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, I don't know if this is actually going to work the way we want it to. What if, look at me, what if we looked at the list and people that we had leveraged relationships with, we engaged and started discipling them? Or what if we knew people who knew people who knew people that were baptized at the lake that Sunday and we called them and we said, we know that you're mature in your faith. Would you take these steps to disciple this person? Because every disciple is a disciple maker and that's how ministry works. That's how the church grows spiritually. Then instead of having a mindset like a consumer that this guy gets paid and this guy has giftings, and so if you just bring someone and they show up and they hear this message at just the right time, then I've done my job and I read my Bible a little bit and then I'm a Christian and I even tithe. That, look, that's not how it works. I've been in this 17 years. It doesn't work like that. The way that people grow spiritually is they don't isolate at the well. They engage people at the well like this woman. They leverage relationships for gospel advancement. Ministry is for every Christian, not just the elite and not just the paid. The goal of ministry, write this down, the goal of ministry. What are you trying to do when we talk about doing ministry at New Life? What are you trying to do? The goal of ministry is to be the middle man or the middle woman. The goal of ministry is to introduce people to Jesus and oftentimes get out of the way. That we have this beautiful Savior that already has the answers, that already has the life change capacity that we could never have. Everything changed in this woman's life when she meets Jesus Christ. He breaks the mold, he talks to the unholy, he pursues, he breaks the social norms of the day. And she understands something intuitively in her life that of all the people that have always been unsafe in her life, Jesus Christ could be trusted. And so she starts talking to him in a way that's very personal. Jesus is safe for us. Jesus is safe for her. Jesus is still pursuing. Jesus gets off his throne. Jesus enters into the storyline. Jesus goes back on his throne and he's still ruling and reigning. The Holy Spirit's working in our life. And our job, hear me say this again, our job is to introduce people to Jesus Christ at New Life. That's what we're trying to do. There are a million things that we can do. If we don't do that, we failed at all other million things. Jesus is throwing this life preserver to this woman, and so Jesus is interjecting into her life. That's how ministry works. Here's another question or statement that I want to run by you. There are reasons, there's just a few, and it's going to be very quick. There are reasons we don't minister. There are two main ones, and I already kind of covered them, but I want to make sure you understand. In all that I've seen, these are the two that always are at the top of the list. Why don't we do it? Number one, we're self-focused. Culturally, we're self-focused. But there's a deeper underlining spiritual reason that we're so self-focused. We are living in hurt and we are living in self-preservation, which is why we have to move from living in the well to ministering to the well. But if you don't deal with your stuff, you will always stay in a, in a place of brokenness. Hurt cannot see past its own problems. And because hurt can't see past its own problems, it's always intrinsically selfish. That should be a motivator for change. People with the best of intentions, when they won't deal with their stuff, will always stay in a place where they constantly have to be ministered to instead of being a blessing to minister to others. The reason that we don't do this is we're self-focused and we're broken. 
and things have to change. Here's the last one. I'm going to spend a little time here. There are massive blessings to being a minister of the gospel. It's not something you have to do. It's something you get to do. And here are the blessings the way I see them. The first one is this, that this is what I love about ministry. It aligns me with the heart of my Savior. I mean, what what bigger blessing is that than in my short time on this earth with a numbered amount of heartbeats that I can take on, like Paul talks about in the epistles, the mind of Christ, that I can live out what he's called me to do on mission. I can take on the heart of Christ. Here's another one. Some of my best friends that I've ever had, most of them actually, most of them, are right here in these seats between the first, second, and third services at New Life. Even some of my close friends are now in Peru because I go down there every year and I've been working with them now for 12 straight years and Pastor Chuck's down there way more than me. It aligns us with the heart of Christ, but then it throws us into community. So many times the church is looking for superficial community where we can just build these relationships uh, on, on something like an event. I mean, it's not that that doesn't work and it's not that we won't keep doing that. We're gonna, in a few weeks, we're gonna throw at you some serious opportunities to get involved in community. But it has to happen organically and the way that it happens organically is you have a burden and I have a burden and that burden draws us together, aligns us with the heart of Christ and then it catapults us into community. And the next thing is this, it brings freedom for not just living for yourself. There is a spiritual prison that you and I live in when our biggest focus is what we want and what we can get and how we can walk in our pain and hurt. And the Bible says this, he who the Son has set free is free indeed. There has to be a time, a watershed moment when you finally say to yourself, enough is enough. I might have been victimized, but I'm not gonna always live as a victim. I'm gonna walk in freedom. I'm gonna be aligned with the might of Christ. I'm gonna walk in community. And I'm going to walk in a way that Jesus Christ called me to. I'm not going to live in the well. I'm going to minister to the well. Rick Warren says this in his best-selling book that sold a gazillion copies. He says this, it's not about you. My dad read that book. He thought it was so groundbreaking. And I remember being a teenager thinking, isn't that just common sense? How can I make a few million dollars? That sounds like a title that I need to adapt to, right? It's not about you. That's the blessing of ministry. It sounds like the curse, in a culture that is so individualistic, but the freedom in Christ is that it's not about you and it was never intended to be. And here's the last one. Ministry prepares us. It prepares us for eternity. Last night, I had a boring night. Boring night. I know it was the last night of the fair but for me it wasn't, it was like Thursday was the last night of my fair, I was done. My weight had had enough, my digestion had had enough, everything, I was done, I was checked out, four nights in a row, boom, I'm out, right? Friday's football, Saturday, I'm chilling at the house, I've got my in-laws, super exciting people, all they wanna do is party into their 60s, it's just, you know, it's, it's almost nauseating that they, they just wanna be so action-packed, and so they're so action-packed that we went to Qdoba, and then we came back from Qdoba, and my father-in-law and my middle child watched preseason football. My wife checked out about an hour emotionally before that, and she got on her phone with her headphones on uh, like she was trying to visit aliens, and she watched Korean drama on Netflix. I don't know if you've done that. I would highly suggest you do not. But that was my night last night. We are very cool. We are very exciting. We're a cutting-edge family. And as we were preparing 
for what was to come, I realized something. Preseason football is lame, right? It doesn't even matter. You could put in the fifth string, 10th grade quarterback, and if you win or lose, it, it doesn't really matter because it's not the main event. It wasn't designed to be that big of a deal. It was just a time where they take people that are not that big of a deal and decide if they're going to give them even a contract past these next however many days in football. And so it's incredibly boring unless you are a total nerd and love fantasy football. It is so boring. But the, the point is this, just like this life prepares us for eternity, just like uh, foot, preseason football prepares us for the regular season and the playoffs and ultimately the Super Bowl, this life on earth serving Christ, it's just the preseason. Hey, the Super Bowl is one day we meet Jesus face to face and those people that we invested in at the well that we didn't judge and walk in condemnation with but we walked with side by side, we're gonna see them in eternity and they're gonna be living out the life that God has called them to since the beginning of time and he chose us in his sovereignty to be a vessel for that process. If you think there's anything more important than being a minister of the gospel, you're lying to yourself and you're walking in your flesh. We've seen this play out over the years. There are these times where they're like these aha moments of what it looks like to live out our faith in Christ and the magnitude of preparing for eternity. I told you last week, we, we brought to light this man named Pete who's 68 years old and I have a picture of him. I'll show you again. He got baptized just a few weeks ago. I thought everything was fine. I get a call. I don't understand what's going on at church. I, I couldn't quite piece together the narrative. I go to Pete's house and just right when the cops show up and his, and his daughter's there and his wife's there, these people that I, I love dearly at New Life, his son-in-law who I'm very close to, we, we all kind of come in at just a barely different times. It, it just happened. His, his body is in the house, but his spirit has gone on to be with the Lord. Just days after his baptism, I told you last week that one of his mentors, Kelly, in his Bible study, he, he told him, I have a peace. I know where I'm going. I know Jesus. And before that, he had all sorts of questions. But I want to show you something that happened at the funeral as we talk about the magnitude of what this thing called ministry is all about. Pete met Christ at New Life. He thought he was doing pretty good, and then he realized his way wasn't working and that he didn't need to make some surface-level changes. He needed to deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow Jesus. And so around three years ago, July 13th, 2019, he sends an email to his sister, Jan, and he talks about the salvation that had recently come to his life. Pete starts with this passage from Matthew. He says, Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me before men, then I will be ashamed of you before my father. And he goes on to tell his older sister, he says, this verse was a weight around my neck for, I don't know, 15 years. He says, I was at a Good Friday mayor's breakfast. I was gathering with mostly community business leaders, some 400 people. And the guest speaker, who always brings a message from God, was doing evangelical work, and at the end, he asked if anyone was ready to accept Jesus. And he told everyone, please come forward. And he says, this is what Pete says, and you kind of have to know Pete and his humility. He says this, he says, I sat like a lump around eight of my business cohorts at this breakfast. I sat like a lump. And I cried, he was a pretty emotional guy, I cried, but I didn't move. 
He tells his sister, hence the relationship between me and Matthew 10.33 was born. I had denied him. It took a half an hour to drive three miles to work because I had to cry and let all the tears out before I could recover and saw people that I knew. He said, after that, I called some numbers I found online and spoke with people about my issue, but they were no help. They tried, but they didn't feel my pain. It happened again, not benial, but sidestepping, accepting Jesus. So now I was 0 for 2, and he says, because his name's Peter, he says, I don't want to be like Peter. I don't want to go 0 for 3 when that rooster crows. Now I'm 0 for 2. I vowed to jump on the next opportunity and thought, what if it's too late? And yet in my mind, I wasn't sure what I would do. Eight weeks ago, I was invited to Celebration Recovery at New Life, a program for addicts of all shapes and sizes, mostly for drug and alcohol, but there are other issues like anger as well. The moderator, Mark, is not a full pastor. That's funny to me. Not a full pastor, but has qualifications to preach to the lost sheep that come to his meetings. He's a former attorney and judge, and he worked with me at the city before I retired. His wife, Rhonda, is his right arm. That's, actually, that's very accurate. As you would imagine with his background, he's a very good speaker. He shares his alcohol and anger issues and growing up with an alcoholic dad. He says he's always trying to forgive his father. He says to his sister, I apologize for my rambling. His sister's a Christian, so she's reading this at the funeral. She's ecstatic. He says this verse was in the Friday lesson. So I talked to Mark between sessions. Second session is one with men in one area and women in the other, and they're letting their hair down. With Mark, also a woman, Carrie, who lives above us. I asked Mark for literature, and he said Rhonda was going, uh, would be my gal. Now the verse had set me to weeping, and Carrie went outside with me and told me that the weeping was the Holy Spirit moving in me. He says, the next week I asked between sessions Rhonda for literature, but she was in a hurry to get more to the moderate the women's sessions. She asked Tom to hear about my story. And the verse, and I started weeping again, and Tom, a former pastor, asked me if I would like Jesus to come into my heart and receive the prayer of sacrament, see above, for about two seconds. And then I said, I don't know what that even means, he wrote that, and then I said, all caps, yes, exclamation point, Tom gathered Micah, a New Life associate pastor who's not nearly as cool as Rodney, he didn't say that, and two special guest speakers from Sioux Falls, they all put their hands on me and prayed for me one at a time. I pray I am beyond Matthew 10.33. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? <laughs> Ministry prepares us for the only thing that even matters. What do all the people, hear me say this. I, I don't know if I'm getting long-winded. I feel like you're with me, but I, I don't want you to miss this next thing I'm going to say, and then I'm going to pray. What do all of the people in the narrative that I just read you have in common? I know some people in Celebrate Recovery, some are rich, some are poor, some are black, some are white, women, men. What's the common denominator? The common denominator at New Life is this. They knew that their moment would be there. They were all, look at me, they were all available. They were just available. All ministers of the gospel. I know Carrie, I know her story. I know Micah, he's right there. He's looking at my bald spot in that picture. I know Micah's story. I know, I know how he came up to the ranks at Central High School and then had a call of God on his life for ministry. I know Greg. I know, Ch I know, I know what God is doing in the lives of people that have come up to the ranks of leadership at New Life, and they all have one common denominator that's not for some of us but for all of us. They were all just simply using the ministry of presence. They were available. They were just available for broken people. They love God, and they love people. 
And so my question to you as we close this thing out, this has been seven months in the making. Where are you at? Are you living at the well perpetually or are you ministering to it and have you made that transition? God wants to take his church and look, I I just want you to hear me say this as I close. He's telling us it's just the tip of the iceberg. Seeing people saved and lives transformed, seeing people like Pete get baptized, make a confession of faith, give their life to Christ at Celebrate Recovery, and then go on to be with Jesus at 68 years old, that's just one story of many stories over the last 17 years, and it's just getting started. There is a discipline to doing ministry that's organic in nature, and it's relationally based, and our job is to love God and to build relationships. If you don't know Christ personally, and I just work past you in this whole idea of ministering to people, I would implore you today, lay your life down at the foot of the cross. The Bible says that you're a sinner in need of saving. The Bible says that Jesus is the solution to your sin problem because he died in your place for your sin, and then he rose to new life so that you can live and be with God like Pete for eternity. So if you don't know Christ, your first step right now, before you leave, you need to cry out to Christ and say, I believe that you are the Messiah, just like the living water in this story, and I believe you died for my sins, and you rose from death so that I can have life, and I want to serve you. But if you've already made that decision, it's time to get on the bus, it's time to start ministering to people because I don't know about you, but this last week I just saw thousands of people that looked like they had nothing to do with Jesus. We don't have to live in an urban area to somehow be around broken people. There are broken marriages, there are alcoholics, there are people that are just broken in their family situations. There are people, multi-generational stuff going on in their family. They come into this place hurting, they desperately need Jesus, and it is time to get on the bus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. And what draws us all together in this space, this last service, is a hunger to pursue people that are broken. Thank you for saving us. If there's anyone in this space who's never said, Jesus, you're my savior, and I turn from my sin and follow you, then I pray that right now would be their moment where they would give their life to you. For the rest of us that have already made that decision, move us into action. We thank you for dying for us. We thank you that this is just the beginning. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.